You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Carm, for those who haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're talking about today. I'm Carm Huntress. Currently, I'm the CEO and founder of Credo, which is helping to automate the access to patients' medical records for a whole host of reasons. My previous background, and Mike, we've spent some time together, was I was the CEO and founder of a company called Rx Review, uh, which now is called Arrive Health, which brought real-time drug costs to doctors and helped them better rationalize uh, cost issues for patients. I guess in some ways now, Credo is really focused on rationalizing access to medical records, hmm. which is a huge challenge today in the U.S. All right, Carm, when I think about medical records. This is something that my dad, God rest his soul, and I would bitch about 20 years ago when he passed away. And you'd see these big charts and all that stuff. And almost everybody and their uncle has said, this can be done better. Now, mm -hmm. the average person doesn't see the communication faxes and things like that. But why does old Carm get to come along and do something about this when the whole world is probably focused on this. What's the yeah. magic potion that Credo is bringing to this? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd say is you're absolutely right. This has been a problem that's been around for a very long time and nobody's really solved it. I think the other thing, let's just do some stats. So this industry of medical record retrieval is $126 billion of cost mm -hmm. on the healthcare system in the US. It's a massive system. And even today, our stats are about a year old. We're mediating about 9 billion, 9 billion pages of medical records a year still via phone and fax. So it's a highly antiquated industry. And when I came into it, I was really looking to solve an issue for patients of saying, we're starting to, we did all this work for the last two decades in bringing the electronic health records into the market. Now we have 80, 90% penetration. There's a lot less actual paper. But you and me as patients don't really have access to our records. That's a very mm. odd thing. And there's a lot, we can talk about a lot of the reasons why patients in a lot of ways don't care until they have to care about their records. Mm -hmm. But I think that probably the statistic that kind of really sets you back in your seat is that we move around 210 million medical records a year in the U.S. So mm. the aha moment for me was, wait a minute. We're moving around 60% of the U.S. is in some way moving their medical record around every year for a specific reason, yet nobody ends up with ownership of it. And they're doing that, right, for treatment, right? I've got a new doctor I have to go see. They're doing that for, you know, malpractice. They're doing that for a second opinion. They're doing that for a clinical trial. They're doing it for all these reasons, but at, they just get it done and then they move on with their lives. And I said, that's kind of crazy. We should probably step in there and see if we can enable access for a patient through those means. And I would say that's probably the biggest difference between me and other people who've attempted. I'm not trying to build a PHR. Microsoft tried that. Google tried that. There's a bunch of people doing it. Our assessment is we have not seen a personal health record that's tried in the last two decades get more than a few tens of thousands of users, nobody mm -hmm. in the millions by yeah. a long shot. And so it really points to the underlying problem that you as a patient don't care or I don't care until I really have to get it, right? Until I need it for a doctor's appointment or I've got a procedure coming up or, and if I do need it, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's like, where is this thing? I don't know. Is it over here? And that I was with this doctor, but he moved over there. And so 
It's a very confusing, it's high effort today to get your record. And we've had all these experiences with patients lately of, oh, I, I have a CD. And then you mm-hmm. say, well, what do you do with a CD? And, it, and so it's a lot of effort and it's a lot of uncertainty. So we're really trying to step into the system where we can really provide a lot of value to people who really need the records. And I think the one last thing of why this hasn't been solved, which is really the question you asked, is that, look, the system isn't built this way. Let's think about fee-for-service for a second. If you just back up and you look at fee-for-service, if, if you come into a fee-for-service hospital and you say, I have all my records, I've already done all my tests, I've got my whole history here. Wait, the mm. fee-for-service system says, wait a minute, I, I want to redo. I don't want that. I want to do new tests. I want to charge you for this MRI. I want to recharge you for this. And we've talked to doctors who said, in Colorado here, I brought a patient down from up north. They had an MRI there two hours ago, and we brought them to our system, and we can't get access to the record, so we just redid it. Another $1,000 out the door of cost. The system likes that because that's revenue. And so fee-for-service, it really does not have an incentive model today to say, hey, we, it's, boy, it would be great for us to have the record. And that's what we've seen. What's really changed in the last two years is the 21st Century Cures Act. And what's that meant to driving interoperability and openness of data in the U.S.? When you talk about a medical record, that somebody wants their medical record, is that symbolic of paper slash CD slash online slash thumb drive? Or are we still talking like like a box that has to get somewhere? How tangible, how physical are we talking? Pretty physical. I would say I've been, we've been at this for seven, eight months now because I just started the company late last year coming into this year. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably, Mike, the most surprising thing of how antiquated this still is. You know, it's 2022. I think about the digital experiences we have on our phone or shopping or traveling. It's incredible what we can do. And yet we have this extremely antiquated methodology. And so we've seen it all, all the things that you mentioned from thumb drives to CDs to paper and just the prevalence of phone and faxing this information is still very high. Hmm. We We are still in the early days. I think it's encouraging, though. I would say this is what's so encouraging we are really starting to see digital transitions. We had a small, we just started up with a new client last week and we were mediating the patient through their portal. So through a EHR portal and we gave it, we sent it out to five patients just to get a test going and two patients did it fully digitally. Hmm. We didn't have to call the hospital. We didn't have to fax a request, a HIPAA request form over. We didn't have to get a release of information. We didn't have to wait days or weeks (laughs) for that person on the other side to piece the thing together or print it out and put it back on the fax machine and send it. It was all done digitally. Hmm. And so we really are starting to see our belief is we're on the early days of this digital transition to mediating all this data digitally. And that opens up so many exciting possibilities. If I would say anything, the last seven months have taught me we're still in the early days Mm. and seeing a lot of paper, phone, fax, CDs, all the stuff we lament in healthcare about our record. Carm, tell me if I'm outside of the norm in where I live in my town, Grand Rapids. We have a pretty big health system here. and I don't like it. I'm independent. I don't like the monopoly of and all that kind of stuff. But there does seem to be a pretty good relationship. It seems like almost every doctor I go to in town is part of this place. And Mm -hmm. they've got 
all of these records. And almost every time I turn around and go into one of these places related to this, the people that are not related seem to be in the system somehow. We're not as a pharmacy. I can't look at my stuff in this health system thing. I'm taking it other cities are more fragmented than that or mm. because I think there is still a problem in Grand Rapids because there's other people that are not. If I went to a podiatrist or if I went to mm -hmm. some other thing, it's probably not going to be connected. But how connected are we versus what you're seeing? Yeah, I think it's a good way to think about it in two really separate spheres. Mm -hmm. There's a hospital inpatient acute care and then the outpatient care mm. world right, where you have internal medicine, primary care, and specialists. What you see in the large systems that are mainly dominated by the large EHR companies in this in the U.S., that would be Epic and Cerner, you're seeing really good connectivity. You know, if you look at Epic, they now have over 100 million patients in their care everywhere. But you've got to then question, wait, what's the data in there? That is really hospital care data. That is, I've had an acute event, I've had a procedure, I've had a surgery, I had a ED, I got in the ICU. Yeah. Right. That's a episodic based care. And really where the problem starts to emerge is in that second category, which is the outpatient care world. You still have a lot of independent physicians. You still have a lot yeah. of EHR supporting that world. You have a big difference between primary care and then specialists. And what the problem is, a lot of the people we work with, which are doing value based care and primary and specialty care, that's where all the high value data is. I want that outpatient data. I want to know what's going on with your endocrinologist. I mm -hmm. want to know what's going on with your cardiologist. The fact that you had an ER visit two years ago, good, thank you, you broke a bone, right? Uh, right. But I really need this, this data. And that's really where we see the big gap today. The long tail issue of getting complete longitudinal health history for you as a patient really is in that long tail of outpatient care, which is still, I think they've done a good job getting EHRs, but those EHRs are custom and one-off and the access to that data isn't there. And maybe this is a little bit to start to dive into what the 21st Century Cures Act is doing and pulling the strings of interoperability and mandating, starting to mandate access. So that's what we're, we really see in, in, in the acute versus outpatient world. I got a comment on Epic I think our hospital uses that, that bigger group I talked about. I think they use that. It kind of looks like a 1990s video game to me. It's kind of a junky, I, I can say that you maybe can't say it. it's a junky, like a lot of different colors, graphics, you know, yeah. it's like someone decided to put a little flower kind of thing over here. And yeah. I mean, if this thing's got like a hundred, how many does it have? Like a hundred million? I want to go on and see everything kind of like a shade of, you know, pan with nice, you know, it, it's kind of like a video game to me in a bad way. Yeah. So look, a lot of this, I think there's two comments I'd have. One is a lot of this stuff is pretty aged technology. You think about Epic, it's it was mainly written in a code, coding language called Mumps. So it's very antiquated systems. In my last startup at RX Review, now Arrive Health, the, the company, we spent a huge amount of time inside these clinical workflows. These are very antiquated, sort of late 90s feel, look and feel, right? Yeah. It's a desktop, old school app. And that's just the reality of it. The second thing is that there hasn't been, right? If you think about an Epic or Cerner or most modern EHRs, their function is around billing and coding and RCM, right? It is not about the provider and patient experience. 
And so there just hasn't in those organizations, there isn't that function. Like I have a full-time UI UX designer on my team. That's not something that they really ever thought about. They just said, hey, engineers, just throw it on a screen and put some check boxes and, and we'll do it. And those in, those environments aren't like what we're used to today, where you can get sort of high design and fidelity, like an right. Apple app out of the app store, where you can really create a wonderful user experience because you have so much flexibility. Those are very constrained legacy systems that that we're dealing with there. So it's it is a sad state of affairs. I expect it to change and get better over time, but it's still very early days. I say to people sometimes, you have to hold healthcare to 1997 standards. Remember Netscape Navigator? And yeah, exactly. Remember like exactly. the early Microsoft apps and how clunky yeah, everything is? Yeah, for sure. Know, it's, it's just, it's still there. It's getting better. And I think there's been a big wake up call to these organizations that they really have to start transitioning. And you talk to the big systems and they, oh, we want, we care about provider experience. We care about burnout. We care about them having too many clicks. And there's people with their full job functions trying to solve these issues. So I think we're starting to see a transition. But to your point, it is, it's, it's a bad video game from the late nineties right now. In the early seventies, I had the, uh, the Odyssey game, I think it was called. And everything had a paddle going vertically up and down the right and left side with this square going back and forth. And then we would take these like cellophane covers and you'd actually stick it to your TV and that would make the different sports. You'd have badminton and soccer and, and, uh, tennis and it'd all be the same damn game with just different covers, different, different covers on it. That's not much different, right? If you think about we go in these clinics and try to help these providers and it's sticky notes today. They have yeah, all their sure. answers to all the things they need but to do this thing. You got to, here's the way you click over here. Oh, and if you need that phone number to get that fax, here's yes. that number. And yes. there's sticky notes galore. And we see a lot of that. We see yeah. that still in, in healthcare today. Carmen, uh, let me take a guess at this. You call it the CARES Act. Let me take a guess. That was some of the little guys saying this isn't fair that we're not able to crack into the systems and we should be, or is that not the genesis of that? There's a lot in the 21st Century Cures Act. Let's just say that first. There's a huge amount of legislation that went into that. Mm -hmm. The most important thing for, I think, you and I as consumers to pay attention is this rule that's called under information blocking. And the government finally said, which it just it wrote it down. We all kind of, I think, inherently believe it, but it wrote it down and said, no entity that has your healthcare data, has your personal health information, your PHI, can prevent you or block you from gaining access to that data. Mm. And it has to be provided to you in a machine readable format, which means a digital format, which means a structured digital format. And so that is probably the most biggest part that a lot of people maybe miss because the big yep. headlines around it. But that was one of the things it did that was so impactful. And so now these systems, there's there's going to be fines that you will start to see. I think this is highly likely of patients asking for their information and a system not falling through, not giving in a digital format and fines starting to emerge that are going to be, hmm. some people are estimating these are going to be million dollar fines on these health systems for blocking information, your medical record to you as a patient. And so that's a big part of the transition. The other thing is it created this framework called the Common Agreement, it's, in its greater form, it's called TEFCA, 
which basically is giving rules of the road. It's giving a framework for the U.S. to create a national interoperability system and piece together all these health information exchanges, which have really struggled to, to deliver on what they're supposed to do, which is give you structured access or just give you digital access and to all your data from one mm -hmm. place. But Tefka is finally saying, hey, I want to, we need Carm Huntress's information. I can reach out with Carm Huntress's information, just his name, first name, last name, date of birth, and pass that out to the national network. And the national network says, oh, here's everything we have on Carm Huntress. And that could be from all over the country. I've lived in three different places. I went to a bunch of different hospitals. I have a QCare. It's driving that standard access across all systems to that data. And that's a very exciting movement. Now, I will say on the ground, the guy doing this in the tactical day to day, we're in, we're in the very early stages. These are still highly antiquated networks. The data is not that great coming through them. There's still a lot of use cases that aren't covered. You can get the data, decent data for treatment if you're actually treating the patient, but if you're doing it for payment and operations and trying to get data, not, there's not a lot of data on these networks today for those use cases. But we're in the early phases. The 21st Century Cures Act is really saying, hey, everybody who's, we've, we just spent X billion of transitioning everybody to electronic health record. Now let's actually make it useful. Let's make it interoperable and connect patients to their data and give it in get a complete sense. All right. So what is that? TAFCA? TEFCA? TEFCA. Is that a acronym? It's an, it is an acronym. I don't have it off the top of my head. It Something. is the, what you need to know, remember, is the last two letters, which is the common agreement. TEFCA, gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, which is the common agreement across health entities to share and exchange health information. And that's what it stands for. All right, Carm. So here's my imagination on this, that all of these people that need this information put out a little call out and they might be sharing it. They might be getting your weight from the people that weighed you last in here and your blood pressure from this person. That would be my hope. Here's why. Because we already talked that Microsoft and Google were not able to come up with a national database where all the information is right there. And I would mm -hmm. hate the thought of the government trying to collect everything and have it in one space. So are you talking that Tafka is going to have this in one database? No, I wish I had a better, a really strong analogy here where your data is going to stay stored where it's stored. But what the, what you can do is a sort of a call out. The first scenario, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. So I make a call out with all your information, your first name, your last name, mm -hmm. your date of birth, your gender, your zip yeah. code. I take all that information. I make a bit, a request and then the network responds and says, oh, I have Mike, in, I have this mic here. Gotcha. It, I have data here. It looks like it all matches. You can get access to that. You could make a copy of it, obviously, if you wanted to. But that data stays there, and then the network just gives you all the data. And then the challenge, the next factor challenge, is how do we merge all that data together mm -hmm. and make sense of it? And I think that's part of what Credo's trying to do. We're trying to really solve that last mile of, let's say you're going to a new PCP. They're connected into the national network. They make a request. The data comes back. Now I have three, 400 pages mm. of clinical data to try to take care of you. And I have seven minutes in a primary care visit to make sense of all of hundreds of pages, right? Right. So 
we first have to create the mechanisms which the 21st Century Cures Act and TEFCA are doing is to create that national interoperability network to gain access to the data. And then the second factor thing is now we need to make sense of it. Mm. But to your point, it's really an opening door to go get it from all the different places and bring it all together in one place. So it's really helpful for you and the people who take care of you. Assuming that is not there yet, that this is relatively new, do you get to just sit around and play air hockey until this information is available? Or what's the timeline on this for you as a company? Yeah. So the way to look at this is that we're in this transitional phase. And you're absolutely right, because we've got some people very sophisticated, have it all digitalized and it's even structured. And a lot of people are using, I'm sure your listeners have heard of the FIRE standard, the Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resource, which is a standard structured schema to describe a medical record. There are systems out there that have gotten that far, which is great. You can get some of this so far. Some of this, right? It's a small percentage, right? Maybe 5 10%. Then let's go to the other side, right, where there's no connectivity. It's an antiquated EHR. Maybe there's still some paper around the office. You have to, the, really the only way to mediate access is through phone and fax. Mm. And so what Credo does really well is we'll do the breadth and depth. We do it all, right? Because gotcha. we understand the market's transitional. And if a provider comes to us and says, hey, I want right. the records on this patient and I'm treating them for acute kidney disease, I don't want yes. their uh, acute record over here. I want all their kidney history and yeah. what's gone on there. And that means we might have to phone and fax. But we're willing to take on any use case necessary to mediate access to the data. In our relationships, we typically try to commit to getting two years of complete longitudinal data on patients. And I think that makes us a little bit more unique opposed to those who are doing the digital stuff, but you're only getting partial data back. And that's not helpful if you're a primary care doc or a specialist that really needs that sense of completeness or a specific amount of data that might not be in the national networks today. I kind of lost my head there for a second, Carm, because I was so excited about this nice little package of this new rule <laughs> that, too, you could, that you could go get everything. I forgot that we started off talking about faxes and phone calls and things like this. Now it's all coming together for me that you're kind of the traffic cop between, uh, you know, self-driving and auto-driving things. You're kind of bringing all this together right now. Yeah, and I think it's the right approach. I think... We have to have organizations like Credo in the market today that are Mm -hmm. helping people make the digital transition and really think about the last mile. I'll tell you a a story. We were in one of the most advanced risk-adjusted Medicare Advantage providers, and probably in the U.S., and we were on an on-site with them in one of their clinics. And we said, what's your current process? We were thinking, oh, it's going to be some fancy software system and all this stuff. And the woman says, oh, wait, hold on, I have to go in the other room and we're like, oh, she has to leave. Why does she have to leave? So she gets up, she comes back and she walks in with a notebook and she opens up this notebook and it's a beautiful notebook. It's incredibly well done in that it has a name of a provider and then underneath in a different color ink, the fax number and pages and pages of this. Oh gosh. And you're sitting going, this is one of the most advanced primary care clinics in the U.S. And we really have to ground ourselves. And then our team says, okay, we're going we're gonna to come here and help you transition that process, that notebook, into doing it digitally. And that's a very hard last mile thing. When you actually get on the ground in the clinic, there people tend to be stuck in their ways. 
They're very operationally, it's very messy. They're right. dealing with a lot of things coming at them. These organizations clearly need, in my opinion, a, an organization like Credo to help them with that last mi mile digital transformation from phone, fax, paper into a fully digital thing. And then we're not even getting into, let's just say by chance, you do do the fax, you get the fax back. Now, wait, how do I get the fax into the EHR? There are some really fundamental cha challenges and in a way that the provider can actually use. So there's a lot here to unpack in terms of making this really a reality in the U.S. healthcare system. As we're talking here, it kind of reminds me of almost what Coinbase is doing, the bridge between crypto and dollar. They're yeah. the ones that are going to help buy a Slurpee kind of thing, getting people in there. When you're then dealing with Sally in the office who's getting her facts out and so on, would you say your offering is, hey, Sally, look, we're making this so simple, we're not going to use the facts anymore? Or is part of Credo saying, no, that's our bread and butter. We're going to work with them to make this facts mean something. It's really about, I'd say it a little bit differently. For Sally, who's maybe a, an admin in a clinic, I want Sally to say, every time I need a patient's record, I'm just going to send it over to Credo and they're going to just take care of it. When they need to do something with it or get something? Get it. When they need oh, that record, it. that a new patient showed up. Got it. I need their records. They can send us the patient or it gets sent to us through a form or they email it to us, whatever. They send it over. Our team picks it up. Our software picks it up. It does as much as it can digitally. And if it can't, we have op human capital who's supporting that to finish. So then Sally gets up the next day and that's not on her list of her job description anymore on day to day. Yeah. And that's a huge deal. I really think about this. This is one of, I think, the highest sort of labor cost to outpatient clinics today, mm -hmm. this sort of unforeseen cost, yeah. where we know, at least in our experience, we're seeing clinical staff people, nurses, PAs, MAs, taking time, hours out of their day to do chart chasing, or to go get records. That is really not a very good use of their time when we have one of the largest clinical shortages in the U.S. today. They need to be back treating, taking care of patients, helping the patient get into the exam room, doing the blood pressure and things that they were trained to do and not sit around and, you know, to chase charts. And so yeah. that's really where Credo's trying to step in and be very thoughtful about the way we do this and support the clinics we work with. Now, I will also say we're trying to create a lot of intelligence out of that data. We're not trying to sit here and say, oh, here's 300, best of luck, here's 300 PDF pages of clinical data that, that you got to sift through. We want to make sense of it too. My, my vision is where we've done our work and the doctor clicks into a view and in 30 seconds, they know the whole history of that patient. And they've got a really good understanding of their procedures, their di diagnoses, their medications, their recent lab results. All those things are super, super important for a primary care specialist doctor. And we want to just get that data together as quickly as possible. Carm, which one of these statements is closer to reality? Sally asks for the information. You get it over to her at 4 o'clock p.m. At 11 p.m., is that all cleared out of Credo or is Credo building a database? We're really building a database. One of the things that's important for us on a missionary basis is that, again, it goes back to my first comment around we're mediating access to 210 million records, but we're not enabling patient access. 
Mm -hmm. And so one of our endeavors with our partners who are typically payers and providers for the most part is to open up at the end of our process, we sit there and we say, God, we just spent X amount of time, it could be minutes to days to weeks, getting all these records together. Yeah. We want to make sure at the end of that process, we're enabling patient access. And I would also say from a regulatory standpoint, you could argue we're mandated to do so mm-hmm. because we can't information block that patient to their data. Gotcha. And so part of what we're trying to do is enable, right? You could think about it as I'm doing it. Um, the providers are paying me to do this work that they need done to yeah. enable patient patients to get an- yeah. access. And I think that really is our underlying mission. The thing I'm so excited about is that if we do our job right and we can mediate millions of patients access to their records through the payers and providers we work today, that will have a dramatic impact on the patient's quality of life yeah. and them being able to get the appropriate care that they ultimately need. Because now they have their record in a centralized location and they can then use it. They can share it with other people. They can look at it. They can get products and services that match their needs. And we might actually support some of that. But what's exciting is we tell this to payers and providers and they go, this is a benefit. This is a great thing for our patients. This is a great thing for our members because now, and it's stickiness, they want to stay with us because they have all their data and it's here and it's centralized and they can take it with them. And and that's really the ultimate goal of Credo and what we're trying to do is enable that patient access. So we don't want it to end with, hey, we got the do- you know data over to your doctor and now it's done. Because my whole, look, we're doing this 210 million times a year. If I can get 10% of that every year and do it for 20 million Americans, I'm going to I'm going to get up every day thrilled about the impact we've had on the US healthcare system and what we've done for patients. It seems that you'd have to with that information to make sure that you're current, you've got the information. It's almost like when someone asks for it, you almost have to ping out and make sure Mrs. Jones hasn't gained 30 pounds in the last couple months, and that's over here somewhere. You've got the information, but you almost have to ping it out, don't you? Make sure it's still valid? Yeah, there's a couple things that I think are little nuances to this, what we're doing, that are pretty Mm -hmm. big. The first Mm -hmm. thing is when you open up that digital access point, you're getting a continuous update. You can get a Mm. continuous update on patients. So if I'm taking something, you know, I love this thought of, oh, I'm going to my primary care doc, and are we paying, oh, we got the latest cart, the data from the cardiologist or vice versa. I'm going to the mm-hmm. cardiologist and I'm getting that data instantaneously. And so this mm-hmm. ongoing digital connectivity is a big deal versus a fax. It's one and done. I just get that sl- slice of time. So that's one thing to really pay attention to. The second thing that's, I think, meaningful here is that we're starting to get the data in digital format. And it's not a PDF, it's not a fax. And so that little change is really impactful in terms of keeping up with XYZ patients' data. And do we have all the most up-to-date things? One of the other things we're working on, which we think is exciting, is that to get a sense of completeness, one of the ways we can look at that is your claims data. Hmm. So if we're working with a payer and they've had you for two years and we see, oh, we can just look and say, we know we got cure here and here. Did we get the data from all those places? Hmm. And if we did, then we have a pretty good sense that we have most of, if not all, of your history in one place. And so those are some of the exciting things that we're doing that I think are, they're maybe a little nuanced, but they're really big, right? They're really big in terms of the transition 
from traditional phone and fax to a digital, digital first ongoing connectivity to structure data on you that's searchable, that's we can use it for population health. We can do all sorts of really amazing things once we have that data in a standard structured format for you. What's the quality and confidence in OCR now? If you get a, maybe a handwritten fax with some light ink on it, but a dot matrix printer, I know this is nuts and bolts, but is your system or some system able, how much can you pull out of that? And how much confidence do you have of that? So if it's, it, it, this is a great question. If it is what we're really, we've been looking at this pretty closely. If it's, if it's text, right? If it's actual text, even if it's scanned text, that's pretty high accuracy, 90 plus percent. Now you really want to get to 97 plus, to be honest. So there's still a bit of a gap. The real problem today is handwriting. Handwriting is probably the biggest gap and you rarely see systems over 80% in identifying handwriting really well. I think there's going to be a, I don't want to give away too much here, but mm -hmm. we're pretty, I'm very excited about some of the neural network stuff that's happening in advanced AI and machine learning models. Mm -hmm. The neural networks now have a real potential to solve these problems in healthcare in terms of unstructured hand, handwritten notes, orders, all that stuff. Um, these neural networks should be able to conquer that problem because they understand context. That's cool. And I think it'll start to change. The thing that still I think is important to say here is I might be able to scan an entire document, but deriving meaning is a secondary issue. So an example is let's say I have a, two columns of data, right? And on the left-hand side of the page, I have the name of the lab and I have the results. The machine might be able to abstract all that data out in text format, but not put it together in a way that makes meaning. And that I, I know that, oh, that line, that test result over here is linked to this test. That's a secondary, really hard problem to solve in terms of moving phone and fax or unstructured data or even text data into derived meaning of what am I actually looking at here and have I made sense of it? So there's still a lot. This is the whole transition we're going through as a society right now. But I will tell you, Mike, I am so I am so freaking excited. It's so cool when you think about if we really do make the transition here and the demonstrable, magnificent, wonderful impact this is going to have on patients and care and those systems getting mandated to say, you can't fax this stuff anymore. It's probably in the hundreds of billions of dollars there of duplicate tests that are going on just because we don't have access to the medical record. So it's some of those things that I get excited that we haven't really seen that bend in the cost curve yet of healthcare. Yeah. These could be big things that could happen that could ultimately shift the cost curve. The thing about not having all the records, let's say that people say, we're going to read do them. We have them, we're going to redo them. Even if you waste the money to redo them, it'd be good to have them to see the trends and things like that. So it's one thing wasting money on duplicate tests. It's another thing not even having the damn numbers to compare it because that would be wasteful, but at least it would be helpful to see those numbers. Yeah, exactly. And so even the comparison is highly valued. Is, this, is your cholesterol going up or down? We don't really know. We have a we have an episodic view of that in a moment in time, but we don't really let's what's the trend been over the last five years? 
this is where this stuff gets really impactful and we kind of brush over it and it's, it looks like an edge case at first, but really no. it's a huge deal. That's it. Yes. <laughs> it's a huge deal in terms of the transition to care. Sure. And then, then I think about really exciting opportunities for you and me as consumers where I do think it's highly likely within the next five or 10 years where, okay, we finally figured it out. We've got full longitudinal access to Mike's record. And we can see the last two or three years, we can see all his conditions, we can see all his lab results, we can see all his procedures. Wow, wouldn't you love a little agent that looked over all that and said, hey, Mike, here's the best things you can do for yourself. Here's products and services that match your conditions and needs that are, and they're, they're a click of a button away. Opposed to just generally, you know, here's a smoking sensation class. Well, I don't smoke. And I had this experience because I tried one of these apps, that consumer apps, PHR kind of thing. And I'm clicking through everything and it's asking me all the questions. And the first offer it gave me was a smoking sensation thing. And that's not, it doesn't mean anything to me. Those are the things that I get really excited about around AI, machine learning, digital. Look at the ecosystem of digital products and services we could offer to patients if we understood their medical record, if we could actually peer into it. Yeah. And I think there's going to be apps in the future that really do this extremely well. And I have some aspirations with Credo that we could potentially get there as a company. You talk about handwriting stuff too. A lot of times handwriting is the biggest thing. Like here's this chart about everything, you know, what this person's going to do for the next three weeks and the computer's doing all this stuff, but little handwriting thing up in the top said she died or something like that. So the handwriting stuff is usually the kind of the important stuff that people left out of the digital part. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I said this to someone the other day, because if you look at clinical value, if I take a full medical record, 70% of the value is in the note, is in the, and that could be a handwritten note or just an unstructured text note, which is terrible because you can't derive, you don't know, you've got to deconstruct that thing to actually understand what the doctor's talking about. And so the thing that's impactful here, one, is we move to a digital structured world that will hopefully go away, but it points to the underlying problem here that a lot of this stuff is buried in unstructured clinical notes that would be highly valued to, to, to you. And this is what I said to somebody. I said this at a big, to a big hospital. I said, how much care recommendations from doctors about care patients should take is sitting inside those notes? And, and I was actually making a fee-for-service argument. I was saying, one, if they took that advice that's sitting in that unstructured clinical note, wow, what an impact that would have because they would be getting ahead of issues most likely, and it would be more preventative. But two, if you're a fee-for-service system, that's more revenue for you. You want that patient to take that action the doctor's recommending. And so you think about, to your point, whether it's handwriting or an unstructured clinical note, how much data and really valuable information is sitting there that's either missed or glossed over. So for it's sure. a really sad state of affairs. Yeah. I had a, on a previous podcast, a recent one, I forget the question exactly. We were talking though about how much information was available to a pharmacist and pharmacists don't get any care information and that's not good. And even worse now with all of the vertical PBMs forcing specialty drugs to their place and not allowing pharmacists to do this and mail order and things like that. It's like when I fill something in a pharmacy, the best I get is 
in interaction with maybe one of these specialty drugs or somewhere that I wouldn't know they were getting it unless I have an interaction. But to do any proactive looking at their charts, something as simple as seeing if, um, you know, trazodone in old depression medicine, is it being used for depression or is it being used for sleep? You know, that kind of stuff on a simple terms. We don't know any of that in pharmacy. We don't see any of those care notes. This is the friction, the pharmacy friction that patients experience is so extreme today. And a lot of it is related to the lack of clinical data. We saw this wholeheartedly at Rx Review when I was running the company of the lack of data. When you think about a specialty medication where you have the prior authorization, the specialty, the manufacturer enrollment forms, that typically takes quite a bit of clinical data to actually fill those forms out. And the pharmacy or the specialty pharmacy, they're completely blind. They don't even know. You think about drug to drug interactions, med history, things like that. There's such a lack of data for pharmacists to really rationalize this. And this is why I'm so excited about some of these patient mediated things where I could see a future where, hey, maybe we're working with a specialist and they say, oh, you just got this new, we got a new prescription for you, sends you a text message, says, hey, the pharmacy needs your medical record. Click here. They mm -hmm. click, they log in to their patient portal and it yep. just whoop, sends the record over to that specialty pharmacy. Now yeah. they have a complete view. They do this. And today, you know, the sad state of affairs is what happens is that specialty pharmacy will call the patient and the patient doesn't know. No. But they're sitting there saying, we need to know your last A1C. Oh, I don't know what that is. We need to know the, the this lab result. I don't know. What do you, you know, what do you, you got to call my doctor? And then it's, who's your doctor? And then what's their phone number? And it's the round robin we're playing to try to track down clinical data when what we really want is an open, interoperable system, and I think really patient-centered, right, where the patient's got that control of moving it around, is really where we have to end up in pharmacy to take out a lot of that friction around prior authorization and specialty drugs and things like that. It's a big deal. It's a huge pain point. Yeah. Carm, looking at Google, who was going to have this, basically, Google Medical or whatever the hell it was called, Google yeah, Health or something yeah, like that. Google Health, yeah. I have heard that one of the reasons for its demise was patients didn't want to update it. That's one. Two is maybe another thought I heard was people don't want, they don't trust Google to have their data. What were the true, in your opinion, what were the reasons why Microsoft and Google weren't able to make this work? The thing that I feel really clearly about here is I'm a big fan of timing. If you look at statistics of startup success, it's half of it is timing. You have to time the market. And I think both for Microsoft and Google, it was a decade before their time in terms of an attempt. There was no real digital mediation at all of records. They were phone and faxing and stuff like that. I think that's the biggest reason for failure. The second one is really the patient problem of uncertainty and really uncertainty, effort, and value. I don't know where this stuff is. Can Microsoft and Google even figure out where this stuff is? Um, there's a lot of effort involved in going back and forth and release of information and all this stuff. And I, I don't want to take a Saturday to do that. 
And value, where's the value? I've just collated a bunch of PDFs for you. It's not really value. I think this is one of the reasons the PHR companies have failed is because just putting your record on your phone doesn't really do anything for you. I mean, I, I tell, tell this story when I was talking to some investors. I went and got my digital record at one of the big Epic systems here in Colorado. I get care. And I had a celiac test done, which is gluten sensitivity. Now, I got the test and I know I'm not gluten sensitive, but it was gluten is yes or no. You either have the sensitivity or you don't. You know what it said in the medical, the digital medical record? It said 272. What is 272? And what was crazy is there were no units. It was just the number by itself. And so I have no idea what that means as a consumer and a patient. And so where's the value? Where's the value in that? Okay, if you could just say yes or no, you have celiac. Okay, now I know not to eat gluten. I can take action. I can derive value. Those endeavors were just not creating value for a consumer. And that's really what you have to figure out at the end of the day here. Who was going to fill that data? Was that the consumer or were doctors going to offer that to Google and so on? I've had some conversations. This was pretty manual. There mm. was some technology, but it was a mainly a, like a phone and fax system that was just going out and trying to go get the records together if you made a request. And I actually remember trying and it was terrible. I don't think they got any data back on me. It was a, you know, a decade before its time, in my opinion. It was just too early. And we've got to recognize that we're in a different phase of healthcare. I really think so now. If you go back to when that was 07, we had, I don't know, 20%, 30% penetration of electronic health records. We're now at 80 or 90%. And systems aren't focused on that endeavor anymore. And they can think about things like interoperability and digitalization as an endeavor. I mean, you know, when some of this stuff starts to make sense to you when you think about like an epic system that's supposedly they have to have something like 100 integrations into all the systems, right? The monitoring systems, the imaging systems, the lab systems, the pharmacy systems. It goes on and on of, you know, how many integrations you have to do to appropriately stand up that infrastructure. We're finally over that hump. And for the most part, obviously, there's some that are further behind than others. But I think we're finally there. The convergence I really see is three things. We've got penetration of the electronic health record. We've got mandates, regulatory mandates coming off the 21st Cures Act to say, you, you have to do this if you want to stay compliant. And the third thing is really, I think, a fire. And the reason of that is it's finally saying, here's a standard structured schema to describe a medical record. And that is such an impactful thing when everybody has agreement, everybody's raised their hand and said, I shall implement in this way. That's the language where all these things talk to each other, FIRE? Yeah, FIRE is really the, the, the standard structured schema to describe a medical record. So let's just do a quick example. Because the first thing you said of those three was the machines are talking to each other. Yeah. What's the basis of that, Carm? Is there a certain language they're all using now or a certain fields they're all using? How are those computers talking to each other better now? It's This is part of the TEFCA agreement to say there's common agreement to say this is the way I'm connecting into the networks. And then there's Certain sort of data both. fields and things like that. Yeah, that's a little bit lower down. First, it's just creating the connectivity. I'm connecting into this system in this way. And th those aren't as well defined, but they're just saying, hey, here's how I connect into my HIE with, a, with data. And there's some things like ADT feeds, admission, transfer and discharge 
feeds that certain keys that are talking to each other. Yeah, basically. that are talking to each other. The thing that's so exciting about Fire that you have to see as the big transition is if I went to Health System A, they may um, describe, let's say, blood pressure in one way, and then you go to Health System B and they describe it in another way. They do different units of measure, for instance. Oh. Well, now I want to I want to compare those two things. There's a delta difference there. What FIRE says, and what's so important to understand about FIRE, says you cannot, it's rigid. It says if you're going to say blood pressure, it's in these specific units. And so if I'm comparing your data from health system A to health system B, they're the same. And so they're comparable. So I can put them on a chart and I can show a line of your blood pressure changing over time. HL7, it served its purpose, never defined that. And so you end up with data that's digital, but you don't know what it means because it's different everywhere you go. It's got different flavors. And so it's hard to compare and chart and make sense of it. Fire is the first time we've said collectively, we are going to hold to a specific standard of not only the structure, but the scheme itself is going to be specific. Let's do the pharmacy example. We saw this at Arx Review. We would do nightly polls out of a health, a big health system in, let's mm -hmm. say, Epic, Epic to Epic. We were working with two big health systems. We pull data from one Epic system of all the drugs that had been ordered that day. We wanted to see for population health statistics and stuff. We'd pull it all. You think about an Excel spreadsheet. You have columns of names of what this column, the first row is, here's the drug name, here's the dose, here's the duration, right? We would go to system B, pull the exact same data, and the columns would all be different. And you'd go, what? And so now we're, now do it for 10 systems and now try to map all the data together. Do you see the problem now? It's a mess. And so FIRE is this really great endeavor that's taken about 10 years to develop. And it, I was in the early days working on this standard with my team at Rx Review to try to say, let's stop that and let's define standard structured ways of describing the data. And that way we have ways of comparing and charting it and making sense of it. That's part of the reason why I think Credo's more of a viable company today than it would have been 10 years ago with Microsoft and Google when they were attempting to do this. I had to factory reset my phone yesterday and don't ask me, it's a sore subject, but I had to factory reset it. And I came upon the Google like mm -hmm. your, if you get into a crash, it knows. And if you, and it gives you emergency number and things like that. And I came across the question of blood type and again, I'm reminded that I have no idea in hell what my blood type is. So here, if I don't know my blood type and I'm supposed to be a medical kind of person, you can imagine just the trouble that would be with consumer input. Yeah. And this is where I think so much of this stuff has fallen short. We have to be, this is one of the shames of sort of consumer care right now is that we have to be these translators of all our clinical data. Yeah. We have to become experts of all this stuff, of our medications, of our procedures, of our, it's such a high ask. And then you think of someone who's elderly and all the healthcare that they've had over their decades yeah. of life. And it's just, an, it's a really untenable thing. And I think this is one of the things that's, I think a bit of a problem from a personal health record perspective for all of us. If I was looking at a procedure I had and I was reading the clinical notes and I said, I don't understand any of this. And I just was like, oh man, and I'm, no, I'm in the field. I'm looking at this stuff all the time. And the doctor was writing things in the clinical notes that I did not, I didn't know that I didn't understand what the words meant. This is again, why 
I always like to ground myself when I'm in, you know, working on a new company or something. What is the reality? Mm -hmm. What are the facts that are really the truth right now of where we are today? And we're still in these very early phases. And that's why I'm so, at Credo, we're so committed to meeting the market where it is. I was like, we got going with some early customers and they were, we realized very quickly to get to that high value data, we're going to have to phone in facts sometimes. Okay, we're going to set up an operational team. We're going to support our clinics. We're going to support our payer partners. We're going to have that operational team phoning and faxing. And I'm, build, I'm okay building a human-enabled, tech-enabled service company with a bunch of humans if that's what it takes to do our job well and really meet our mission, which is enabling that patient with their complete record. And that's what we're committed to. Carm, where does the blockchain play out in this? Let me ask it this way. 10 years from now, you're not going into these different healthcare places and they're answering your pings and stuff like that. All of this is somehow in the blockchain no one owns it except the person and credo is again like the coinbase where you're the person that's making sense of this nebulous blockchain yeah so i mean this is this is funny you know I've, i always laugh sometimes at what's my investor pitch it's mm -hmm. like a ai driven neural network for understanding unstructured medical record on the blockchain yeah. And what I just sound sounds so cool. Like, exactly. Right. It yeah. sounds like amazing. And I should be able to raise a hundred million dollars sure. on that. Um, sure. We're a long way away from that. I spent, I have spent and I still spend a big fan of crypto and paid close attention to the NFT markets because I think there's synergies or things relatable to healthcare sure. here. But I'll tell you just examples of why we can't really have a blockchain solution yet. And the first one is the problem with medical record data in that it's very messy, mm -hmm. right? Am I really going to put someone's handwriting on a blockchain and the types of data and the way it's coming together? We yeah. really need to get to that digital format where you can start yeah. to think about this. The second thing is error. Blockchains are immutable. You put something on them, you cannot change them. If you look at most statistics, and we know this as, as, and this is a big impact on healthcare, the third leading cause of death is medical errors. Hmm. And when you look at medical data, about 10% of it is error-ridden today. Hmm. And of that 10%, 25% of that data is life-threatening. That's wrong. And so, you know, my viewpoint is I don't really want to endeavor into the blockchain until some of those issues have really been dealt with. I just sit there and I go, geez, let's get the errors figured out and get the data cleaned up yeah. before we think about putting it on a blockchain. I think the other part, too, is that I think there's been endeavors on this. I've studied a lot of them. Some ICO, remember the craze and in the initial coin offerings that came a few years ago. The challenge that was really inappropriate was people were just taking like a 100-page medical record and just throwing it onto a, the blockchain. That's not really valuable. Mm -mm. It's just this big PDF locked up on a blockchain. In my belief is that what the answer here is in blockchain world is when I can just take a discrete piece of my healthcare record, like a blood pressure like a an A1C, like a procedure. And that little piece is structured in an NFT-like model. Then the world becomes really interesting because let's say you had that mic. You could say, hey, 
I'm going to see my doctor today, and it's a follow-up from this procedure I had over here. I just want to share the procedure, hmm. and I want to share it for one day, hmm. and he only gets access to the procedure. Mm -hmm. Or I'm getting a life insurance policy, and here's the information I want to share, which hmm. may be more complete record, right? Yeah. That is starts to get really interesting in terms of privacy, control, in a very nuanced, discreet way, which might be a high value use case for using blockchain in terms of it. And I'll tell you the far out use case that I just love, which is you invert the EHR, which what it means is you're in complete control. You know, the EHR doesn't store your data. You have your data and you have complete control. And so you walk in to your doctor, you tap your phone and you sit share. Your doctor then has complete access to your record, they're adding data to it, they hit done, it submit backs, it writes another block on the blockchain, and now you have your record and you walk out with your record and it just goes with you. That for me is really the future of this, but I think in a decade. I agree. You can make a to-do list with apps on your phone. The problem is the only people that are going to end up doing it on the phone correctly are the people that probably already did a pretty good job with to-do lists anyways. It's way out there. Yeah, I, and I just look about what we need. And the job today isn't about putting on the blockchain. No. It's not even really about putting it on the phone, I don't think. No. I think it's more about, hey, how do you get this data over to my doctor? How exactly. do we get it in a structured format? How do we get away from using CDs? I actually had somebody on my team drive, a few weeks ago driving around New Jersey, physically going to facilities with a scanner in their car, getting medical records. Wow. This is 2022, folks. This is where the reality is for getting this data together. And then I'll tell you the client, you're not going to believe this. The client, we scanned it in to our secure HIPAA in the cloud yeah. thing of their record. And then we said, we want to transfer it over to you securely. What do you want us to do? And you know what the client said? They said, fax it over. They said, fax it over. <laughs> and I went, God, I wanted to scream. I said, uh, this great. is not the answer, guys. That's the job to be done today. That's where you got to meet them. Yes. The people that kind of like the to-do list, the people that want the blockchain and all that kind of stuff, they're already doing a pretty decent job with databases and things like that. It's not those people. It's the long tail that you talked about, those odds and ends out there that just aren't getting in there. Carm, you mentioned NFT. When I think of NFTs, I'm often thinking of digital image ownership. And we've seen that now with the, the board, is that board monkeys, board apes and the board apes yeah. and the, and, and different things. That example you brought up there, if they had an NFT, I'm not familiar with that NFT then talking digitally to something, would it be something that the physician would look at in your example, or are they able to take the NFT and do a near field zap or something to put that in their computer? The way to look at it is the physician might have their own wallet, right? Yeah. That they're, yeah. they have oh, on their I phone see. an application. Yes. And then what you're just is permissioning them into the, their wallet for based on a certain set of rules, right? To have that wallet for 48 hours or something like that. Yeah. So it's just an opening into an app or whatever the physician might have their own solution, right, that they want to use. And it's just opening that up. It's a fun sort of ethereal conversation because the other part that gets really exciting is research. I think about this world where you could have a coin, right? You could have a monetary system and where 
researcher could come to you and say, hey, I'll pay you, let's say Bitcoin, I'll pay you some Bitcoin here to give me access for 30 days to your record because I hmm. want to do research. And they hmm. could send that message out to 5 million people. Or maybe there's enough visibility on the, on the chain to say, I wanna, I'm looking for people with diabetes. Mm -hmm. And it just pings all those people and says, hey, are you open to doing this? Yes. And then you know where it's going. You know what's being shared and for how long. There's some really amazing stuff you start to think about doing. Um, or, you know, I love the idea of, of sharing, like, let's say that there's a new digital app, right? A digital, like a diabetes management app. And it just says, hey, share your blockchain with us so we can better build your program and personalize it for you based on where your A1C is, based on where your blood sugar is, based on other, where's your weight and all that just shoots over so you can use it in the app, right? That's the type of portability we ultimately want around our records. One of the things you could say is really clunky about the user experience today is that I have to log into all my different access points. It's a pretty exhausting endeavor if you've gotten to care at a lot of different places. The thought of having that centralized on a blockchain NFT type infrastructure is very interesting. But again, I always get back to, let's not get obsessed about the technology. Let's talk about the value to the consumer. And if I could get paid to anonymously share my medical record with researchers, hmm, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's a maybe in terms of value to consumers and doing a job that they, they would enjoy doing. And I think for a lot of people with rare diseases who are looking for a cure, Gosh, how great would that be if they could just easily share their data with researchers to, to lead to a cure to their disease? I had a guest on and they were talking about the value of blockchain for research. And they said, right now, you might collect research and you're getting it from all over the world. And then someone's got the damn header wrong on the database or they got the decimal moved over a thing and it just messes something up like the old telephone game, you know, and he said with blockchain it's original data basically on this stuff. He said, it's going to be a big value for that. Yeah. I, I think we're going to see, you know, I, I kind of remember, you know, I was born in the right at the late nineties. There I was growing up in high school and things like that. And what I saw that same thing where we had that sort of iterations of the internet, if you read the book, technological uh, revolutions, that book is incredible at helping you understand that all the things to get technology actually deployed, you have to have this installation phase then, and then you have deployment. And that, that I still think we're in this early installation phase of crypto technology and blockchain technology, where it's not yet at that deployment phase. It's still, there's clunky, it's, it's like using the internet. The first browser was a mess. It, and then it had to get better and better, and you had to get this sort of installation. And then you saw this massive deployment of it everywhere. I think blockchain is very similar in that way and that we'll see, I think this third iteration, I think we went through sort of the initial Bitcoin thing. Then we had the whole ICO craze um, and Coinbase. And now I think we're onto the third iteration, which is going to be super interesting that I think will emerge post this sort of technical, if you're following the curve of the market right now, on after this downturn, I think we're going to see some really interesting stuff emerge out of it all across healthcare and fintech. Yeah. Besides getting the technology up to snuff, its ability, you've got to have enough of a network. It's like, how valuable was the first fax machine to somebody? Yeah. <laughs> that means nothing until there's faxes across the country. 
Yep. Yep. Exactly. That's the thing we've got to remember. And again, this is like interoperability right now. Yeah. We've got the first digital fax machine, right. or the first few getting planted around the country. Right. We just need to do a lot more. And we're still doing that installation of national interoperability through standards, through the common agreement, through TEFCA that are driving that interoperability. And as more access points open up every day, you eventually hit a tipping point where you have massive deployment of those systems. And we'll see a tipping point from traditional phone and fax to doing mediating all this stuff digitally. Carm, when we look out 10 years with Credo, and even though I'd like to talk about all the cool technology stuff on it, don't go there. What is this going to mean for the average parent, the average person that needs care? What's going to be really cool in 10 years? What does that value look like for a customer in 10 years? I think the first thing I would say before I answer that is my endeavor is to enable access for 100 million Americans on Credo and have a relationship with those patients and their records to help them live their healthiest lives. Now, I think when we tip to 100 million users on the platform, I think the things that we're going to do are going to be extraordinary. Because we've finally done that thing we all talk about of transitioning the patient to the center of their care. And I think that only becomes true when we've enabled it with their data. Because healthcare is an, in, an end of one experience. It's about you and your individual care. And no two patients are alike. But when we have that data, we can really do that personalization and that unique delivery of care. And so, you know, if I was really pushing the boundaries of my imagination, I would say that we would have a set of AI agents around your data evaluating everything going on with your life, both from a medical, diagnostic, lab, qualitative, quantitative data, quantified self data, feeding into engines and making recommendations to you based on people like you, based on people with the same genetic profile, based on you, people in the same age group, in the same socioeconomic situation. And then having a marketplace of products and services that are highly personalized to you and your needs of your family. And then the last thing I say is the door opening to highly personalized care and research. Hmm. And that would be the other area where I think we could run synthetic or real-time clinical trials. We could help patients get into clinical trials that today have very high abandonment rates or unenrollment rates. We could do things about advanced diagnostics, right? Looking and saying, hey, we're watching your data here. We think you have a, ge you know, a genetic issue here. Yeah. And we'd like to run a test on you to check if you have that, if you have a potential genetic issue here mm. or a genetic disease that has been undiagnosed. Yeah. Those are the types of things that I imagine 10 years out we will be doing. And I love the idea of having a comparative engine. We can either build people just like Mike and see their continuum of care and know that this is the best next thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. Or I can synthetically build it off the data mm -hmm. and basically build almost like a digital twin to you and mm -hmm. start to see and start to think about, hey, mm -hmm. what are the best treatment options here yeah. for you? That's the endeavor here of Credo long term. And I'm so excited. We're in these very early phases. And if you think about really what we're doing is I'm working with payers and providers today to subsidize the high cost today it takes me to go get your record to get to the future where it'll be a commodity, right? Because it'll be digital, it'll be interoperable, I can get it a sense on the dollar. And then all these new possibilities open up today or open up to you as a consumer. 
That's what I want to do for patients. And in terms of my selfishly, the impact I could have, I get inspired thinking about the impact I could have on patients' lives and the difference we could make as a company and our mission. And that's what gets me up every day. And I thought about a lot of different businesses I wanted to start after doing Arch Review. And I really want to go do something big and impactful. And I care deeply about the U.S. healthcare system. And so I hope we're able to achieve these things and ultimately bend the cost curve on the GDP of healthcare because we have to. We are going to lose our spot as a world leader um, on the sheer cost of healthcare in this in this country, and we have to fix it. And we've invested a lot, and we still have not seen quite enough results in terms no, of haven't. changing the cost curve. Yeah, and so I hope I really hope Credo's part of that, and I hope we make that change in the next ten years. I picture in ten years I'm going to pick Credo up, and I'm going to be so proud of you, Carm. And it's going to be like the Jetsons voice. I forget what her name was on the Jetsons, that little robot. Yeah, Rosie. 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 And it's going to be a Rosie voice. And it's going to say, Mike, we've had this artificial intelligence team look at your thing and we've done all this. And it's going to say, we recommend not to have three bowls of honey bunches of oats at night. And I'm going to throw it in the drawer and I'm going to no, say, that, toss I'm going to say yeah. that damn Carm. Carm, good to see you again. You Congratulations too, on credo keep doing what you're doing the world needs you <laughs> thanks mike always a pleasure thanks so much thanks carm talk to you again yep bye bye you've been listening to the business of pharmacy podcast with me your host mike kelzer please subscribe for all future episodes